Looking at our world from a theological perspective, this is the Theology Central Podcast, making Theology Central. Good afternoon, everyone. It is Wednesday, January the 26th, 2022. It is currently 1249 p.m. Central Time, and I'm coming to you live from the empty sanctuary of Victory Baptist Church located right here in Ovalo, Texas, where it is currently 33 degrees outside. Yes, you heard that right. Right here in the middle of nowhere, Texas, it is 33 degrees, which means I shouldn't even be outside. I should have never left my home. It's way too cold to be outside. I know some of you live in other states where you're saying 33 degrees. Whoa, you're you're a wimp. Well, yes, I live in Texas for a reason because I don't want to be in the cold. But even though it's cold, I made the sacrifice. I sacrificed my comfort for your spiritual benefit. Okay, is that, is that a little much? Yeah, I think I think that's probably a little much. But yes, I I went and started the car. I let the car run for about 45 minutes. You think I'm exaggerating? I am not. I let the car run for about 45 minutes. And then I went open the, and I got it as close to the front door of the house as possible. And I ran outside, put, put, kept putting all of the equipment in the passenger seat and then ran back into the house, got warm, then ran, got in the driver's side and well, drove here to the church, immediately ran into the sanctuary and turned the heat up. So it is nice and warm here in this empty sanctuary, cloudy and cold outside. But with all of that said, we're going to turn the spotlight onto another Christian podcast. Yes, we are doing a series where I'm taking time as much as possible. I'm trying not to let this series interfere with everything else that we need to do. But take some time whenever I have the time to turn the spotlight onto a Christian podcast so that you can consider subscribing to it, start listening to it, most importantly, benefit from it. We, Everyone listening to me, you have either a tablet, a computer, right here, a phone, and you carry these, these devices around in your hand all day. Every time you just, if you, if you had a video of yourself, you would probably shocked how many times a day. Uh, yes, I know. Someone who lives in the local area just said, I know. Why is it so cold outside? Yes, I know. It, it, it is cold. All right. But every day, If you had a video of yourself, you would probably be shocked to see how many times a day you pick up your phone, you pick up your tablet, you pick up your phone, you pick up your tablet. It's absolutely, it's maddening to me when I realize sometimes like, well, what am I doing? I keep, I keep looking over my iPad. I keep looking at my iPad. Stop doing that. Stop doing that. Now I've got certain rules that I follow pretty, pretty good. If I'm watching a movie or a television show, I'm watching, I will not I, I do not get near my iPad. I, I, I have the phone. I don't really use my phone, but I'll have the phone in another, I mean, another part of the house. I will, I do everything not to ensure that, to ensure that anything that I'm watching is not interrupted by iPad, phone, or anything like that. I try to do the best of, best of my ability that when I'm doing my devotional time or Bible study time, I try to make sure I'm using a notebook, a pencil, and a physical Bible, and I'll try to put my iPad somewhere far away and only go pick it up if I need to check something like, you know, looking at the Blue Letter Bible app or looking at some kind of resource. But I try my best because if you're not careful, you're, you're doing one thing and next thing you know, you're over there just looking at who knows what. 
So we all have these devices. Most of the time, I feel like the devices are using us. We're not using the devices for something beneficial. However, I'm not saying get rid of the devices because the devices give us access to so much amazing content, content that can help you grow spiritually, that can help you learn. You can learn church history, theology, biblical theology, doctrine. You can learn so much if you'll just use that device in a a thoughtful, disciplined way. If you will discipline yourself to say, okay, I'm going to make sure that I that every time I pick up my my mobile device, I'm going to try to immediately go to something that is beneficial. That's why we have the Bible Memory app. Hopefully, instead of doing other things on your phone, you'll open up the Bible Memory app and just spend a few minutes working on one of the verses, memorizing the verse or reviewing. That will be doing, you know, that will be helpful as well. Or subscribing to good Christian podcasts. That the first thing you do is you open up a podcast app and go, oh, there's a new episode and hit play and listen. If you will discipline yourself, literally what you have in your hand, like either a tablet or a phone, I I continue to, to say this, you literally have in the palm of your hand really all of the knowledge of 2,000 years of church history right there in your hand. You've got everything from the church fathers. You've got theology. You've got doctrine. You've got church history. I mean, you've got everything you can need. I mean, it's it's absolutely amazing what you have available to you. We just don't use it. So I'm trying my best to say, hey, hey, I'm going to turn the spotlight on that podcast right there. Go subscribe to it and listen to it. Now, I don't want to take too much time in my introduction, but I really, really want to just try to explain why I'm doing this. I'm doing this so that we don't, we we all pick up our phones, we all pick up our tablets, and then we find those things are actually using us. Don't be used by them. Use those devices for something beneficial and something helpful, all right? Now, so far, we've turned the, the podcast spotlight, the spotlight on the following Christian podcast. Five minutes in church history. That's an easy one to subscribe to, and it doesn't take much of your time. Church History Almanac, again, doesn't take much of your time. Simply put, doesn't take much of your time. Those three were the first three we turned the spotlight on um, because because it's just so easy. Those three you can listen to within probably 20 minutes. Even if they were released every day, you could probably within 20 minutes listen to all three. And you're getting Church History, and you're getting Systematic Theology. All for free, all for free, all right? Then we uh, did, uh, we put the spotlight on exegetically speaking. That deals with hermeneutics. So now you're getting hermeneutics, you're getting systematic theology, and you're getting church history. And I'm really emphasizing this. You're getting all of those things for free. And you don't even have to leave your home. You don't even have to go outside in the cold. You don't have to go anywhere. You don't have to go to a library. You don't have to drive anywhere. It's just right there coming directly to you. All you need is uh, your device, a notebook, a pencil, and you're really getting an entire, listen to me, seminary, Bible college education. You're being equipped. Then we, uh, then we changed our focus. So, so that was five minutes in church history, church history almanac, simply put and exege- exegetically speaking. Then I decided to take a, 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 to turn, not really to take a detour, but to turn our focus to Bible colleges, seminaries, and Bible institutes. 
because I think it's very interesting to listen to podcasts that originate from Bible colleges, seminaries, and Bible institutes because they show us how the the next generation of pastors are being trained. It gives us an indication of where the church is going. And not only that, you get to reap the benefits from those educational institutes, those educational institutions. You get to benefit from it. And so why would we waste those opportunities? So we turned our attention to Hiles Anderson College, not because I agree with all of their theology. This is not about listening to things you necessarily agree with. These are listening to things, giving you insight into what's going on in the Christian world, challenging you, teaching you. It's not about just, oh, all I'm going to listen to are those things that I completely agree with. If that's all you do, (laughs) then you're always going to think you're right because you're never allowing yourself to hear any perspective that may be actually different than your own. And that's not how we grow. So we look to Hiles Anderson College. Now today, on this cold Wednesday afternoon in West Texas, we're going to pack up and we're going to take a trip to... Watertown, Wisconsin. That 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 doesn't sound that doesn't sound pleasant. We're going to Wisconsin. Okay, Watertown, Wisconsin, and we're going to go to the campus of Maranatha Baptist University. Maranatha Baptist University. Now, if you wanted to actually go to school there, uh, it would cost you eight thousand four hundred dollars per semester. If you actually wanted to go to school there, it would, re, it would cost you $8,400 per semester. That's how much it would cost you, all right? And that, and that may even be with uh, financial aid. Without financial aid, it may actually be more. But it's around, it's over $8,000 per semester to go to Maranatha Baptist University, which is, which is kind of crazy, which then raises a a big question that I have when it comes to the church. Why is it that churches, which is supposed to be the place to equip people, right? It should be the place where men are equipped for ministry. Instead of churches doing that work, they look at men who call to ministry and like, okay, now you go off and you go to seminary, you go to a Bible college, you go to university, good luck. And then that that man has to then, you know, move his family try to find a job, find a way to support himself or get in all kinds of debt. It just makes no sense. And as a result, when he comes out of that Bible college or that seminary, in many cases, he has financial debt. So he can't take a job that may be a little small church. No, 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 no. He's got to find a church that can pay him enough that he can start paying back his loan or his student debt. Why does the church create a situation that puts people in such difficult circumstances. It makes no sense. Local churches should be training the men for ministry. And at the very least, if they are going to send the man somewhere for education, the church should view that as almost supporting a missionary. And the church helps support that person to go to Bible college. Like I, I I don't, and then, and then because you're helping your, it's really the ministry of the church preparing the next generation of spiritual leaders. And then that man doesn't come out of Bible college in debt. And then he can, he can take a job at any church. And then the church that sent him out could continue to financially support him almost as a missionary so that he can minister to that small church and yet be able to to take care of his family. But the whole system is broken. It's like, oh, you want to go to ministry? Well, all right, go go off to Bible college, go to seminary. Good luck. 
That's just, no. The training should happen inside that church. And then any additional education, the church should help pay for. But it's just crazy how much, I mean, we could go from college to college, but I, yeah, I'm against that entire system. I hate the entire system. I wish it would all go away, but it's not going away. It's just an industry has been built on getting people basically a biblical education. But here's the great thing. I've stated it a million times. If you'll just use your phone and use your tablet, and if you have a decent church, you can get a, a better education than you can get in any Bible college or seminary. If you'll just use the things that are available to you, and if you'll go to a good church that will really dig in and teach you, you can get a better education than Bible college or seminary. I know some of you are going to get offended and go, well, my Bible college is the best. Okay, well, great. You can walk around with a t-shirt and act like it's the best, but I'm telling you, people can get the, uh, the same level of education. Maybe there's some specialty things like in, in Hebrew or Greek, where maybe you need to go to class. But I've known pastors who went to seminary, learned Greek or Hebrew, and they still, I mean, they didn't become experts in it unless that became their primary course of study. Like they just took a couple of classes in it. Unless that's going to be your your focus, you're probably going to be, you're never, not going to be great at it. Now, you could be a person who doesn't go off to Bible college or seminary and dedicate yourself to learning Greek and Hebrew, and you probably could reach a very close level to people who will pursue degrees in it. You probably could if, if you really dedicated yourself to it because so much is available to you for free. But I say all of that to say we're turning our spotlight on Maranatha Baptist University. Now, I verified this. I went to a couple of podcast apps I went to Breaker, I went to Pocket Cast, and I, I started searching for Maranatha Baptist University. I think even before I got done typing it all out, it showed up. Immediately subscribe to it. It's available on the Edify Christian Podcast app. It's available on probably all the other podcast apps, and it's available on the Sermon Audio app. However, the Sermon Audio app in its current state is absolutely useless to you because you really can't subscribe to your favorite broadcasters unless you, like, pay. It's really weird, but they're going to fix all of that whenever the update ever comes out. And then I can't wait to see if it functions more like your typical podcast apps. Hopefully it will, and uh, then it will be uh, another a great addition to all of the other apps that are available to you. But just do a search for Maranatha Baptist University, located again, what, Watertown, Wisconsin, if I remember correctly. Yes, Watertown, Wisconsin, and, and it currently costs you over $8,000 per semester to go there. But we're going we're gonna to listen to some teaching from that university. Are you ready? Here we go. We got a lot to do. This is a, this is obviously we probably won't get done in this part, but we'll, we're going to go as far as we can. And we're going to basically turn this into like a sermon review uh, analysis. And again, it's not about, well, why did you choose this one? I chose this one because it's probably a Christian podcast you've never heard of. I'm trying to find ones that maybe you're not aware of. I'm, I'm picking one because it's another university, Bible college. I'm, I'm, I'm picking it for that reason. And, um, I'm, and I just like digging in and, and hearing what we have to say. And I, and I also like to listen to one episode and take it apart and critique it and analyze it so that you get, kind of get a feel for what it is. And then you can determine if it's something you want to subscribe to as well. And it allows uh, me to let them speak for themselves 
and not uh, misrepresent them in any way, shape, or form. All right, so here we go. Maranatha Baptist University. I don't know. This doesn't appear to be something that happened in chapel. I think this was some kind of special meetings they were doing on campus. I don't really know exactly the setting, but uh, it looked like it's called Living in a Corrupt Society. So I thought it would be interesting for us to listen to. So here we go. Let's read the Bible together again this morning. Micah chapter 5. Micah chapter 7, rather. Micah chapter 7. Hey, as you're turning there, uh, Dad's been telling stories on me all week, and I'm not going to tell you any doozies right now, but I do want to talk about my parents for just a second. Um, When my parents came to Maranatha, uh, people started calling my mom, Mom, and uh, I got a little jealous about that. She's not your mom. (laughs) She's not a campus mom. She's my mom, okay? And I got a a little defensive about that, but I'm thankful for Uh, the ministry that my mom has here on campus. And a lot of you have gotten to know uh, my mom over the years. And some of my earliest memories of my mom were uh, walking down the stairs in our family's parsonage, or in the family's parsonage, yeah, in Pennsylvania, and seeing her sitting on the old couch in front of the picture window, uh, poring over her Ryrie study Bible that was so highlighted and had gone through so many times that it was now held together by duct tape. And so I would see my mom meeting with the Lord almost every morning uh, when I would wake up. And so her example has instilled within me uh, a love for the Word of God. And so to this day, typically around 5.15 on Sunday morning, I'll get a text from mom that says, I'm praying uh, for the ministry of the Word this morning and some encouraging tidbits about how exactly she's praying. And so I got to tell you, uh, students, that my mom's uh, bubbly, joyful countenance that you see day in and day out. I have seen it my whole life. And people have come to me and they said, is your mom real? Like, is that smile thing? And is all of that real? I'm like, yeah, it's real. Like from my earliest days, I would get up in the morning and she would say, good morning, David. Isn't God so good? And, and that's, that's really who she is as she pursues uh, joy and happiness in Christ. Dad also instilled um, a love for the word of God in me. Didn't have the, good morning, David, great to see you. Um, But he did instill a love for God's word within me and all of his kids. In fact, we would take road trips as a family. We'd go see grandma, uh, grandparents, wherever they were living. And on the road trips, to pass the time before we all had screens in front of us, what would we do? Well, we would grab our Bibles. And dad would say, okay, kids, read to me any two consecutive verses between Matthew and the end of Revelation And I'll try to finish it for you, and then I'll try to give you chapter, book, and verse. Guys, my dad can do that. Um, He has the command of God's word. He's memorized it. Now, sometimes in the Gospels, you can trip him up uh, because they're so similar. And so if you want to get him after chapel, bring up a verse, uh, read him a couple consecutive verses, make it a hard passage from the Gospels and see if you can get him. Or I think the other rule was no grace, mercy, and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ because every book starts that way. Uh, my parents have a love for the Word of God, and they have passed that on to their children as uh, part of our heritage, and so we thank God for that. And so coming now to the Word of God uh, together this morning, Micah chapter 7. We're going to qu- take a quick dive into this prophetic book. And as we do so, we're actually jo- 
Now, this works out really good for us since for our Bible study exercise, we worked on Micah. So this will be interesting. This will add to what we've already studied. So I'm interested to see what he has to say. Once again, I, someone's probably going to say, I wish the volume was louder. I wish it was louder too. I Look, I don't understand what's the deal with Christian podcasts and why they always have to have their episodes such a low volume. I don't understand it. It, it just drives me crazy. It's not that difficult, okay? You set up your recording equipment and you just go, you test the volume five or six times every Sunday when I get to church, I go back, put on the same microphone that I've been using for 500 years, go to the same setup and go test, test, one, two, three, test, test. And I listen to it. Test, one, two, three, test, one, two, three, listen to it. I'm like, okay, I think it's good to go. And if I detect there's anything possibly wrong, I immediately start working to fix it before we start going live or recording at the church. It's not... I, I I don't look. I don't have a sound team. I don't have. I look. It's just me. But I just get to the church a little early. Turn on the microphone. Hit record. Test one two three. Test. Listen. Okay. That's. I don't know. <laughs> it's like. It's like. No. We've got to keep this volume so low. I mean that that the volume you're hearing is literally cranked to one hundred. It makes no sense to me. But okay. I know I say that every time we do this, but that's all right. So Micah, he's in chapter seven. He started off in chapter, he said chapter five first. I'm like, oh, okay, this could be, this could be interesting, but it's going to be chapter seven, which will actually be interesting because it adds to our study that we did in Micah. So here we go. Jumping toward the end of Micah's message. And please understand that the words that we read this morning are Micah's reflection on a ruined society, one that is ready to collapse from spiritual and political decay. And so let's read the text, Micah chapter 7, verses 1 through 7 this morning. And again, Micah is reflecting upon a ruined society. Woe is me. For I am as when they have gathered the summer fruits, as the grape gleanings of the vintage, there is no cluster to eat. My soul desired the first ripe fruit. The good man has perished out of the earth, and there is none upright among men. They all lie in wait for blood. They hunt every man his brother with a net, that they may do evil with both hands earnestly. The prince asks... And the judge asketh for a reward, and the great man, he uttereth his mischievous desire, so they wrap it up. The best of them is as a briar. The most upright is sharper than a thorn hedge. The day of thy watchman and thy visitation cometh, now shall be their perplexity. Verse 5. Trust ye not in a friend. Put ye not confidence in a guide. Keep the doors of thy mouth from her that lieth in thy bosom, for the son dishonoreth the father, the daughter riseth up against her mother, the daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies are the men of his own house. Therefore, or, but as for me, I will look unto the Lord. I will wait for the God of my salvation. My God will hear me. If we had the time to read all of my... Now we've got to stop right here. Now, any, anyone who is used to listening to preaching, critiquing preaching, reviewing preaching, you know that at this top point in time, what you hope he will do, 
I mean, he just jumped into chapter seven, right? He, he, he said that Micah is basically speaking in the midst of a corrupt society. That's kind of his thesis. That's kind of his theme uh, that Micah is speaking to a corrupt society. And so obviously he's going to try to use that to teach us how to live in a corrupt society. But let's hope now for a good, anyone listening to a sermon at this point, you would go, okay, what I need is I need a little bit of context here. I need a little bit of background. Who is Micah speaking to? What's the historical setting? I need some of that information. I have no problem trying to apply it, but we still need to get some kind of like actual, what is going on here? Because he just jumps in the, (laughs) hey, Micah chapter seven and just starts reading. Now, maybe he's going to back up and offer us some context. If he does, great. If he just ignores all of that, then that would be a problem, but we will see. I mean, this is being taught at a Baptist university. Let's see how they handle the text and how they're equipping the men of the future and Christians of the future to handle the text. That, that's what we are looking to see. Here we go. Micah chapter 3 this morning. You would see material so similar, but yet expounded, that it would be a deja vu sort of experience. You would hear about prophets that are teaching for hire and perverting the word of God. You would hear about justices that are taking bribes and perverting justice in the land. You would hear about priests that are not teaching the law of God as they were told to do. You'd see materials so similar that you would realize that the nation of Israel at this time was a collapsing, corrupt society. And it really invites the question, chapter 3 and chapter 7 being so similar, why would God-inspired scripture appear to be so redundant? Why would a prophet like Micah cover the same sort of material twice in such a short amount of space? Now stop right here. A couple of things here. Now, he's saying that Micah 3 and Micah 7 are very similar. All right, that's, that's a good observation. That's a good observation. Why would he cover such similar content and such a short spirit, uh, 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 such a short space? All right, that, that's a good observation. Good question. Now, my first concern is he just mentioned that this is to Israel. This is to Israel. Well, if you, I've just right here, I have the ultimate Bible guide. If I just, if I just pick this up, I'll just show you. Okay. Now, wait a minute. Uh, I'll, I'll just, I'll give you a one sentence summary and then I'm going to read the purpose of the book. Just see if you, you catch anything interesting here. Although Micah also prophesied against Israel, his main message was against Judah, which must repent of idolatry and injustice or else go into exile. Purpose of the book. The book preserves the divinely inspired prophecies that Micah made during his ministry of at least 20 years. These prophecies were originally for the people of Judah facing Assyrian invasions. Micah warned that because of idolatry and injustice, God's case against Judah and Israel were severe. Their kingdoms would be destroyed. Now, the only problem, whenever you get to any of these minor prophets, you can't just say Israel, you get, no, you have a divided kingdom. So when you say Israel, you're referring, referring to the Northern kingdom, or if you're, are you referring to Israel in a generic term to refer to, refer to the North and the South? Because the Northern kingdom is Israel. The Southern kingdom is Judah. You've got to be precise 
And so many preachers aren't precise when they get to these minor prophets. And so then you'll ask the people in your church, okay, let's go through the minor prophets. All right, who who did they prophesy to? And people will be like, uh, uh, Israel? You're like, oh, no. You got to know that. Whenever you deal with the minor prophets or the major prophets, is it to Israel? Is it to Judah? You're dealing with a period of time where the kingdoms are divided. When the kingdoms are divided, you must be precise and who the words were specifically to. Yes, I know. Sometimes Israel can just be a generic term that can refer to the north and the southern kingdom. But when you're in a, when you're looking at a book that's in a historical setting where the kingdom was divided, then I think we have to be very careful to be precise and go, well, primarily his words here are to Judah. Now, that means if sometimes he's referring to Israel and sometimes he's referring to Judah, then as a good Bible student and in a good university, you want to make sure your people realize then for every verse, if you think that Israel is sometimes mentioned, you have to identify when is he talking to Judah? When is he talking to Israel? And what is the hermeneutical key to help you determine which one he is talking to? That's, 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 and listen, I just taught you that, and it did not cost you $8,400 for this semester, <laughs> okay? All right. In other words, that can be taught from every pulpit and every church. You don't need to go to Bible college to learn that. That's just basic things. And what I demonstrated to you is like just a basic resource, like the ultimate Bible guide can help you go, wait a minute, who's that book to? Now, once you determine who it's to, if they say, well, they sometimes mention Israel, then it's up to you as a good Bible student to go, wait a minute, is that referencing Israel? Is that referencing Judah? Is that referencing both? How does that relate to both? Is, is, so is the condemnation to both, but the precise judgment mentioned is only to one? There's lots of questions you have to ask yourself. Now, maybe he's going to clarify that, but he just generically threw out, this is to Israel. <laughs> wait a minute. Uh, I, Raise my hand. Wait a minute. I, I know I know what's going on here. This is the divided kingdom. All right, so let, let's, let's continue. And as I considered this question, the thought struck me. This side of the coming kingdom of Christ, which is not here yet, God's people will almost always find themselves living in ruined, decaying societies. Oh, now you may want to write that down. That's a very important observation. That's really good. Now, this, this is good. I wish you would have been a little bit more precise on what's going on in Micah, but this is a very, 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 very good observation, a very astute observation, all right? On this side of God's kingdom, in other words, this seems to be indicating that this person believes in an actual literal coming kingdom where Christ will rule in Jerusalem for a thousand years. Whether you agree with that or disagree with that, that's irrelevant. But he's arguing, so before either Christ comes back and sets up a kingdom on earth or before we are in heaven, as long as we live on this earth, before Christ returns, we will always find ourselves living in basically corrupt and dying societies. The societies are always going to have corruption. There's always going to be sin. There's always going to be defilement. There's always going to be injustice. There's always going to be wrong. 
that's been that's always been true. It always will be true. That's why it bothers me so much when I hear usually it's older Christians. Well, I wish we could go back to the, you know, the way it was when I was growing up. You want to go back to when you were growing up. What made it so great then? Oh, you're talking about when there was segregation? Are you ta- like, what, what? You want to go back to the times when there was slavery? Like, what? what you want to go back to the times when we were taking the land from the the original people who were here? Like, what do you want? What, what? Which? When was those great times to go back to? Right? It'll be older people who'll look at something in society going, "This world is so messed up." I'm like, "Well, we could go back to the times of I don't know Sodom and Gomorrah. Those were great days, weren't they? We we could go back to the time of." Cain and Abel, things were just so great there. You had brother killing brother. Or we could go back to the time of Joseph and, well, you know, his brothers sells him into slavery. Those were good old days, right? Or we could go to Judges. The, oh, man, that those were some good old days going on in Judges. Like, so sometimes I think Christians have some weird view of human history. It's always been corrupt. It's always, in a sense, been a dying, corrupt society, because this world is corrupt and dying because of the presence of sin. So I think that's just something we, we, we're always going to be living in that. So you can like, we, and Christians always say, we've got to take our country back. We've got to fix it. We got, you can't fix society because there's no solution to fix society other than the preaching of the gospel. If everyone in the world embraces the gospel and starts following Christ, then, but other than that, every other attempt... Even the attempt will be tainted by sin. It's that simple. So that should change your perspective on how you view society. So that was worth our whole time of listening right there. You're like, well, that was a very basic principle. Don't ever, whenever you hear a basic principle that's good, don't dismiss it because you're like, well, I already know that. Celebrate the fact that you're hearing it again and it's reminding you again and how to think. Be, that's one of the reasons we listen to Christian podcasts, listen to sermons, so we can constantly be reminded and challenged to maintain a biblical perspective because there's so much bouncing around in our heads that's unbiblical. All right, let's see, but let's see what he does with this very good observation. And so the Holy Spirit planned for this sort of content to appear over and over again because this is the sort of situation in which God's people are usually going to find themselves Old or New Testament. You see, Micah 7 is exactly the sort of situation that we will usually be in. You see, Christians, as we saw last night, we are sojourners. We are, we're looking for a better city, Hebrews 11. Peter tells us that we are chosen exiles. In other words, we're chosen by God and very precious to Him, but yet we're also exiles on this earth. We're we're away from the coming kingdom of Christ. We're already citizens of that kingdom, but that kingdom is not here yet. And so to put this in Jesus' words, we are truly in this world, and he has not willed that we should be taken out of this world. So we're in this world, but yet we're not what? We're not of this world. This is why we have passages in the prophets and in Micah specifically that cover such similar material about the collapse of society and about living among corrupt people. Since these are the situations that almost always face God's people. Friends, we must learn to understand these sorts of situations. And we must learn to live in these societies in a way that is still pleasing to God. And so this morning, let's consider a sermon entitled, Living in a Corrupt Society. 
living in a corrupt society. And as we consider living in a corrupt society, would you consider uh, four statements with me this morning? The first three are simply observations about how corrupt a society can be. The last statement is a call to action. It's how the righteous should live in such a corrupt situation. And so notice with me, number one this morning, that society can be so corrupt that the righteous may think they are alone. Society can be so corrupt that the righteous may think they are alone. I I trust you'll see this as we try to almost decipher verses 1 and 2 together because they are difficult. Woe is me, for I am as, there's a metaphor coming, when they have gathered the summer fruits, as the grape gleanings of the vintage, there is no cluster to eat. My soul desired the first ripe fruit. The good man has perished out of the earth, and there is none upright among men. They all lie in wait for blood. They hunt every man his brother with a net. Imagine with me that you walk into the door of your house or your apartment, and you've worked a long shift. It was mandatory and unexpected overtime. You missed dinner, but when you walk into the house, you can smell the family specialty. I mean, you would know that smell anywhere. It's, it's one of your favorites. It's that shredded barbecue chicken that your mom cooks in the crock pot and full of anticipation you go over to the crock pot and you lift the lid and guess what you find inside you find a whole big batch of nothing you see your family has eaten it all there's absolutely nothing left for you and you're hungry that's a modern example of what's going on in verse one Micah's walking through a vineyard just after the time of harvest, as it were, and he expects to find leftovers in the field, but there's nothing. He can't find any fruit at all. Now the word as in verse 1 signals for us that this is a metaphor, and so Micah feels like someone would feel when they're expecting tasty fruit, but yet to their great disappointment, there's, there's nothing left. Well, why would he feel this way? Well, he tells us in verse 2, Just as he searched for grapes and he found none to eat, he has also searched the land of Israel and he can't find any godly people. They've all perished, he says. Just as he searched for figs and couldn't find any, so he searched the land of Judah and he, can't not, he cannot find anyone who's upright. That is, he cannot find anyone who is faithful to a covenant relationship with Yahweh. Notice how he just, he, he mentioned, he's mentioned Israel twice and all of a sudden he just switched. Now he said Judah. He, so he searched out Israel, can't find anybody. I, he, Judah, what, so wait a minute. Did we just go from the Northern kingdom to the Southern kingdom? <laughs> were you using Israel in a generic way to refer to both? Or were you referring to Israel as Judah? Like y- you gotta be, this, this stuff just drives me crazy. And I know people say you're just being nitpicky. I'm not trying to be nitpicky. This is about literally making sure you have a correct understanding of the book. The goal isn't just to go to Micah and just say, look, there's a great illustration here. It is. It's it's great illustration, great application. Wonderful. You still got to make sure you maintain a basic. Look, it's one thing to go to a story. Like well, like we are currently do, like we've been doing in Genesis thirty seven and Genesis thirty nine for our Bible study exercise. We've worked heavy on application because the story is straightforward, right? It's not that I mean here's here's a family here's what's going on in the family. There's nothing very confusing about it. But when you get to something like Micah, 
Yeah, I understand that for preaching purposes, you don't want to get all bogged down going, oh, wait a minute. All right, guys, is this Judah? Is this Israel? I understand that most preachers don't want to get bogged down into all of that. But if you never get bogged down in it, your people will never learn it. And if your people will never learn it, they're going to walk out of the service that you're currently listening to. Micah, who is, was it to Judah or to Israel? And they're not, they're going to be like, Israel, Judah, I, I don't know. Right, because the one preaching didn't bother to offer any kind of even, he didn't even offer a one sentence of explanation or clarification. And even in his own preaching, he said Israel twice, and now he just made a reference to Judah without, just as if they're synonymous. Well, they're not synonymous in in a time period where there's a divided kingdom. Okay, They're not synonymous in that way. They're two different kingdoms. One's going to go into Assyrian captivity to never return. The other one's going to go into Babylonian captivity for 70 years and come back. So you, you got to draw a distinction, right? I know, oh, it drives me crazy. All right, here we go. You see, society is so corrupt that Micah feels like he's left completely alone. In fact, he's starting to think, I'm the only one left. Now, previously in Micah, He had just announced God's judgment in the previous chapter. And now he doesn't believe that anyone is left in Israel who actually believes Yahweh, who actually lives loyally in covenant relationship with him. He's searched the land and he's found nobody. For the whole Bible reader, it's almost impossible not to hear echoes of the episode between the Lord and Abraham where the Lord revealed to Abraham that he was about to destroy the city in judgment And Abraham said to him, far be it from you, O Lord, to to, to slay the righteous with the wicked, Genesis 18. And you remember the negotiation that took place, as it were, between Abraham and the Lord. He would not destroy the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah if there could be found ten righteous people. But here in Micah, the prophet doesn't seem to believe that he could even find one. The prophet Jeremiah is just as pessimistic. He says in Jeremiah 5 verse 1, Run ye to and fro through the streets of Jerusalem and see now and know and seek in the broad places thereof if you can find a man, if there be any that executes judgment, that seeketh the truth, and I will pardon it. See if you can just find one guy who's obeying the Lord. Do any of you need a cold room for sleeping? All right, my wife and I, we, we have to have a cold room for sleeping. Now, we want about 100 blankets on, right? But, but we want the room to be cold. And so we have this fan that is always on. It's on in every season of the year. It's on in the coldest nights. And a few weeks ago, I was walking across our bedroom late at night in the dark with bare feet. And I got my toes stuck on something sharp. I could hear the buzzing of the fan. And for a moment, frozen in time, I thought my toes were stuck in that fan. It's this horrible feeling. It's like, so this, what it, this is what it feels like to lose a digit. I'm about to be decapitated in the foot. And as it turns out, my toes were not actually stuck in the fan, but it was still an uncomfortable situation because my toes were stuck in one of these. The situation was not fun at all. 
But in actuality, it wasn't nearly as bad as I had first perceived it to be. Now, I want to be careful here. Because Micah is a true and godly prophet of Yahweh. Furthermore, every word of this prophetic book is inspired by God and it is completely true. But here it seems that what is inspired by God is a true prophet's pessimism towards Israel. All right. Now, I don't know what he stepped on because he obviously showed it to the crowd, but he didn't tell us. Okay. But I see the illustration. All right. So he, he experienced something that he thought was horrible and it didn't turn out to be as bad as he thought. He's implying that what we're reading here is Micah responding in a very pessimistic way, and it's not really as bad as he perceives the situation. Now, there's a lot here to, to ask. Is that a, first, is that a correct understanding of, the, of these verses? Is that a correct understanding? What, what, what hermeneutical idea is he utilizing to come to that conclusion? Do commentaries agree with this idea? Do how many commentaries agree that Micah is just going, I'm the only one, and he and he's not seeing the situation accurately. How, what? And he keeps he he's gone. He said Israel, Israel. He said Judah. Then he went back to Israel. I, I, he's he's gone back and forth there. So we don't even know. He's not even established. Is he referring to something that's happened to the northern kingdom? Is he referring to something that's happened to the southern kingdom? Is he referring to something of how people, how it will be perceived when judgment does come upon the southern kingdom as far as going into Babylonian captivity? Like we've got to understand specifically what is he referring to? Something that has happened, something that is happening, something that will happen. And then which thing is he referring to? Something with the Assyrians, something with the Babylonians. Look what like, there's a lot here that we need to understand. And see, this is the thing. You can't, he's running to application before he's done any first observation. He's almost done, he's done observation and interpret, he's done interpretation and application without any actually helping us observe what is actually going on. He's giving us a basic idea of what is going on without any specifics. So the, the observation has been very poor and he's trying to get us to interpret and apply it, but you can't interpret and apply that which you haven't observed. This is basic hermeneutics 101 and it's really sad when you hear basic hermeneutics 101 being violated in a university. But see, this is why we listen to podcasts coming from universities because it shows us how people are being trained moving who are going to be the future pastors. And this right now it's not a good, let's see if he offers any, I'm going to see if he offers any insight before this is over. Here we go. You see, he's not the only prophet who ever thought that the situation was far worse than it really was. Do you remember how pessimistic that Elijah was during King Ahab's reign? He had just gotten news that Jezebel was going to try to execute him. And while the angel of the Lord was ministering to this depressed prophet, Here's what he mutters back to the Lord in his depressed state. He says, I've been very jealous for the Lord God of hosts, for the children of Israel have forsaken thy covenant. They have thrown down thine altars. They have slain thy prophets with the sword. And I, even I only, and left. And they seek my life to take it away. Okay, now, he's, he's going to another passage. To, he's going to another passage to establish his interpretation 
of this passage, but he's not doing anything in this passage to help us see. He's not, he's not giving us observation from this passage to help us establish his interpretation. He's going to another passage to establish his interpretation here. So this is really kind of a misuse of a cross-reference at this point. You can't go run to another passage. See, see how he felt there? Well, that's the same thing going on here. Well, how is that passage connected to this passage? That's just like, that's just random cross-referencing. So I just, I just looked over and realized, oh, I've got a commentary here on Micah. Let's just see what they do here in verse one, right? And this is just, this is just frustrating that sometimes you have to do this, but here's, this, this is why we do these things, because I'm trying to teach you how to interpret and listen for yourself. Or right, here we go. Micah 7, 1 through 10, the believing remnant and the time of judgment. The prophecy describes the believing Jews during the time of Israel's apostasy and God's judgment. Now, Israel's apostasy and God's judgment, which is that a future time? Is this a is this referring to when they're going to be taken by the Assyrians? This commentary doesn't seem to offer much insight, but let's continue. It describes the one who waits for the God of his salvation, Micah 7, 7. Okay, the awful conditions are described in Micah 7, 1 through 4. There is no good fruit, Micah 7, 1. This is literal. The the fruit of Israel crops was destroyed and devoured by enemy after enemy for centuries. This is also metaphorical. The believer desires the first ripe fruit of righteousness, but he lives in the midst of a bitter fruit. I don't know if it's metaphorical, but okay. Micah bemoaned his position in the midst of a people who were totally godless. He lamented evil times in which he lived. He felt like a person who goes into the fields to pick fruit, but finds it all gone. Now they're approaching it that what Micah is doing here is he's like, basically he's, he's bemoaning how bad the situation is. It's not that he's feeling like I'm the only one. He's feeling like, look, there's no fruit of righteousness here. There's no, look, look at how bad things have gotten. He's, he's, he's upset about how bad things are more than feeling uh, sorry for himself or not having an accurate perception. Again, see, there's a difference in how to handle this. Uh, Micah 7, 2 through 4, the, there are no good men. Uh, the good man is perished out of the earth and there is none upright among men. Micah describes bloodshed, oppression, lying, stealing. He describes a society that is devoted to wickedness. They do evil with both hands earnestly. They are passionate about evil. Micah 7, 3 is a perfect description of a corrupt judicial and business system. Whether Jewish or Gentile, the ruler and the judges takes bribes to do whatever uh, the great man desires, meaning the man paying the bribes. They decide, so he's just going on describing how bad the situation is is, all right? Doesn't give me here any indication of what it's referring to here. I'm going to go back. Nope, it doesn't. I thought it was going to offer some like introduction to chapter seven, but it doesn't appear to do that. So they don't provide much of a historical, yeah, they don't, they don't, they don't do much here to provide us much of a historical perspective, which makes it difficult. But their, their approach is a little different. Their, his approach is Micah is like, I'm the only one, and he's pessimistic, and he doesn't have an accurate perception. This one seems to be saying, no, he has an accurate perception, and he's upset at how bad things have become. All right. Still, we need some, some basic observations there to help us understand. But all right, let, let's continue. 
Doesn't that sound a little bit like Micah's perspective in Micah 7 too? I searched Israel and I couldn't find anyone who was godly or upright. I mean, they're all just ready to catch one another in nets. They're just ready to, to rob one another and prey on one another. They're purely wicked. But back with Elijah, the Lord reminded him, I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. Elijah thought there were zero, but there were actually 7,000 who still love the Lord. See, my point this morning is not to say that the people of Israel were actually pretty righteous and that Micah was just overreacting to their sin and corruption. That's not what I'm saying. No, my point is that in the land of Israel, there was such widespread corruption that Micah felt as though he were the only one left who truly loved the Lord. And friends, it just wasn't true. It's never true. God always has his remnant of true believers. But fact is, times can get so dark that you just feel like you're alone. You just feel like there's nobody else who wants to follow the Lord. And in times like these, it's when God's people need to stick together. But I'm getting ahead of myself. Not only can society be so corrupt that the righteous may feel completely alone, but number two, society can be so corrupt that the righteous may even be hurt. Remember that Micah said in verse two that he felt like he was a prey getting hunted. And now notice what he says in verses three and four. That they may do evil with both hands earnestly. The prince asketh, and the judge asketh for a reward, meaning a bribe. And the great man, he uttereth his mischievous desires, so they wrap it up. The best of them is as a briar. The most upright is sharper than a thorn hedge. The day of thy watchman and thy visitation cometh. Now shall be their perplexity. I don't know, do any of you guys, um, do any of you guys actually use your phones to make calls anymore? Any of you? Or is it just like texting, social media? I, I'm from the millennial generation. I think I'm one of the oldest millennials. And we don't talk on the phone, right? I, and so if, if, if my phone rings and the number is not in my contacts, I simply don't answer it. But about four or five years ago, before I got into this habit, I saw a 262 area code come up on my phone. That's my home area code. It was a Saturday afternoon. And so I thought maybe it was someone from church. And I answered it only to be boldly confronted by the man on the other line. He wanted to know why I had called someone he loved, an elderly person, trying to scam them out of money and personal information. I remember being shocked. Uh, Sir, sir, I'm sorry, I I, I don't even know what what you're talking about. I've made zero phone calls today. And when he simply wouldn't let the matter rest and take my word for it, I said, look, dude... (laughs) I'm a pastor in this community, and I don't know what else to say. Someone else must have figured out some way to make it look like it was my number, but it wasn't me that was trying to scam your loved one. There was a pause on the phone. He said, you're a pastor? Now, this is truly crazy because I'm a Catholic priest. (laughs) Did you hear the joke about the Baptist pastor that tried to rob the Catholic priest's grandmother? Doesn't it? Anyway. Scammers, what can they do? They can actually like mirror your phone number and pretend to be you while they're trying to con someone else. They're so good at scamming 
that they'll try to steal from the naive or the elderly while pretending to be someone else. And it's so maddening. These people are masters at deception. They're skilled thieves. They're smart scam artists. It's kind of like what Micah is describing. In verse 3, he says that the people of Israel do evil very well. They do evil with great skill. Beyond this, he says, they do evil with full gusto as well. They even use both hands for added force. And even further still, they, they do evil in tandem together. That is, they cooperate to defraud others. They are co-conspirators in their evil ways. Well, how does this work? Well, in verse 3, we see that a man of worldly esteem has an evil desire in his heart. And he's able to carry out that wrong desire without any earthly consequence because he can bribe the rulers of the city to look the other way or to pervert justice. You see, the law of Moses was crystal clear on this. If the leaders take bribes, then those who are truly in the right are never going to be able to get justice. You see, it's not the innocent people who resort to bribery, right? It's the guilty people who resort to bribery. And so a society that is built upon bribes is a society in which justice and righteousness are not going to prevail. It will be a society in which the righteous will get continually trampled. Listen to how Scripture warns against this. The law of Moses was clear. Thou shalt not pervert judgment. Thou shalt not respect persons. That is, show partiality. Neither take a gift. That's a bribe. Because a bribe does blind the eyes of the wise and pervert the words of the righteous. Furthermore, taking bribes is antithetical to who God is. Deuteronomy 10.17, For the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, a great God, a mighty and terrible God, which regardeth not persons. That is, he doesn't show partiality and he does not take reward. He doesn't take bribes. That's who God is. And so notice how Micah describes these powerful men in this corrupt society. The strong men, the rulers, and the judges. They're all in cahoots to pervert justice through bribery. He says in verse 4, The best of them is as a briar. The most upright is sharper than the thorn hedge. Micah thinks the leaders of his society are about as pleasant as a thorn in the hand and about as useful as a briar in the rump. In fact, if you get involved with these guys, don't expect justice. Instead, expect to get hurt instead. If you have principles and you're not going to play the game at their level, then even engaging with them might bring you pain. Now, I have to raise a question here. He's insinuated, if not just blatantly claimed, that Micah's perception of the situation is not accurate, right? That's what he kind of claimed in chapter seven, verse one and two, right? That Micah's like, I'm the only one, I'm the only one. And it's not really that bad. He's being too pessimistic. Well, if his, if his description is not, if his perception is not accurate in verse one and two, then is it accurate in verse three and four? Well, I mean, it's not like all the judges are bad. So like, how do you read this? Hey, this is, this is an example of when a Christian sees the world and thinks it's really bad when it's really not that bad. Is that how we preach this? Or do we preach it that, no, society was really, really bad? Like, so, so like, what's the thesis here? How to live in a really messed up society 
or how not to have the wrong perception when society is messed up and thinking it that it's worse than it really is. So either is Micah's perception right or is Micah's perception wrong? And if we're reading Micah's perception and it's, does the text indicate that he wasn't accurate? Like th- this, this to me raises questions. Well, see, Micah just thought it was really bad, but it really wasn't. It's like waking up in the middle of the night and you start, and a fan is, fan is going and you step on something and you think for a moment that your toe is being cut off by the fan. But in reality, your toe is not actually in the fan. You stepped on a different thing. See, that's what Micah was doing. Micah got up in the middle of the night. He stepped on something and thought, man, this place is really messed up, but it really wasn't that bad. So what we do is we read every verse and go, see, Micah thought it was really that bad, but it really wasn't. Is that how we, doesn't that then defeat his thesis that how to live in a corrupt society? So I guess his thesis would be when you live in a corrupt society, don't think it's as bad. Don't think it's worse than it really is. Have a correct understanding of it because Micah got it all wrong. <laughs> is that the thesis here? I, I'm so confused by his his approach to this. I'm, I'm really a. I'm really. I think he's made a great point that we're always going to find ourselves in a corrupt society. So the question is: Is Micah's description accurate? And if it is, that's the kind of place we can find ourselves, which is something we need to be reminded of. Because you can take some of these descriptions and look at around at our society and go, yep, there's a lot of similarity there. Okay, now, what do we do in the midst of it? Well, we can't even make that the point of the chapter if we have already called into question Micah's perception. <laughs> we've, we've done, he's, he's almost undermined his entire thesis. He's almost argued against the very thesis he has put forth in the sermon. <laughs> that, that is so confusing to me. All right. Oh man, we're at an hour. Okay. We're going to have to break this into another part. Let's, let's just see if we can find a good stopping point here. Here we go. You see, they're so good at evil that righteous people just end up as their victims caught in their thorny fangs. And so sadly, as we've seen, or as we could see throughout Micah, this was a society that was built upon bribes and even perverted scales And when this sort of thing happens in a society, the righteous cannot fully bank on the structures of society to have their back. You see, even governmental leaders will become just as likely to stab them as anyone else. And so not only can a society become so corrupt that the righteous may feel alone, and that the righteous may end up getting hurt, but notice, number three, that society can become so corrupt that the righteous may not be able to trust anyone. Okay, so society can get so bad that you feel alone, okay? Uh, so he says that society can feel so bad that you can feel alone. Okay, well, if, but Micah was, what, he implied that Micah wasn't right in his perception. So was Micah right or was Micah wrong? And society can get so bad that the righteous can get hurt. Okay, these are good reminders, right? You can you can get in a society where things are this bad, but it, it, he's undermined his points because he's he's made he's called into question Micah's perception. So is Micah referring to a situation where not only do you feel alone, you are alone, and you not that you feel like you're getting hurt, but you're actually getting hurt. 
Or is Micah feeling like the righteous are getting hurt, but his perception is not accurate? So you've already called into question Micah's perception, but now you want us to take points from Micah's perception. I don't know if I can. Okay, I'm getting all confused. Now, Twyla is telling me, just keep going. So if I keep going, now I don't want to get emails going, but that podcast was way too long. This is going to be all Twyla's fault, all right? So I'm just going to keep going because one person has asked. If you're listening live and you want to argue with with Twyla, jump into the chat and tell her that she's wrong. But I'm just going to keep going for now. I'm going to back it up because we can hear the third point. So according to him, when you live in a corrupt society, a society can be so corrupt that you feel like you're alone even when you're actually not alone because Micah is wrong in his perception. You can get hurt. I guess that's literally get hurt or is that Micah's perception about getting hurt when, but it's not accurate. I don't know. And then I can't remember number three. Let's back this up and hear uh, the third point. Let's back this up again. All right, here we go. Here we go. On the structures of society to have their back. You see, even governmental leaders will become just as likely to stab them as anyone else. And so not only can a society become so corrupt that the righteous may feel alone, and that the righteous may end up getting hurt, but notice, number three, that society can become so corrupt that the righteous may not be able to trust anyone. All right, number three, the, the society can get so bad that you feel like you can't trust anyone. Now, again... He's already established that he doesn't think Micah's perception is accurate. So in other words, society can get so bad that you don't feel like you can trust anyone, but actually you can. So it's the thesis of this sermon. Hey guys, when society gets bad, don't think it's as bad as it seems to be because your perception is not accurate because even Micah the prophet didn't understand it correctly. Is, is that is that the is that the message here? I I am really struggling to follow this through. I'm really struggling because he seems to be it seems to be almost talking two different things. Like Micah's not perception is not accurate, but see how bad the society was. But it, we don't know how bad the society was because we're reading Micah's inaccurate perception of it. So do we really know how bad it really was? <laughs> so I, I'm, I'm confused. I don't think he realized he undermined, he under, he's undermining his entire argument. <laughs> it's like, okay, it's like, here, here, it's almost like, okay, judge, uh, here's my witness. Now my witness sometimes perceives things to be worse than they really are, but I want you to hear my witness because they're going to tell us how bad things really are. But, but just remember that their perception is not always right. So you want us to listen to a witness, tell us how bad things were, but we can't trust the witness because their perception is not accurate. <laughs> so that means Micah 7 is an absolutely useless chapter because it's the words of an unreliable witness. <laughs> I'm so confused. All right, let's continue. Look at verses 5 and 6. Trust ye not in a friend, put ye not confidence in a guide. Keep the doors of thy mouth from her that lieth in thy bosom. For the son dishonoreth the father, the daughter riseth up against her mother, the daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies are the men of his own house. Now when Micah says, put no trust in a friend or a neighbor, 
He's not talking about ultimate trust that's reserved for God alone. Okay, that would be kind of Captain Obvious. As the second line makes clear, he's talking about having practical confidence in someone. Being able to count on them, as we would say in the normal course of life. And so society was so corrupt that the sacred bond that should exist between the closest of human relationships, this bond had all but disappeared. The second line of verse 4 The day of thy watchman and thy visitation cometh now shall be their perplexity. This describes the beginning of God's judgment upon Judah, with their enemies taking some of their cities and breathing down their necks and possibly even laying siege to the city of Jerusalem. And during this time of intense national pressure, emergency, and chaos, the people should have been able to turn to their closest relationships. Okay, so now we're back to Judah. He's talked about Israel. He's talked about Judah. Now he's dogmatically saying this is when Jerusalem was, I guess, to be, to be taken, I'm assuming by the Babylonians. I'm assuming. I mean, he's not offered any historical context, but now he, he reverts back to, see, this is accurately, this is an accurate description on how bad it was, but he already called into question Micah's trustworthiness as a Witness, because he said that Micah perceived things to be worse, that this is Micah's pessimism. Micah was just pessimistic and thought it, things were so bad. So were they bad, that bad or not that bad? I, I don't under, like, I, I've never seen a pastor literally destroy his own argument. <laughs> I don't, I don't even, this, and remember, you can pay 8000 $400 to go to this university uh, to learn uh, the Bible. All right. Okay. Um, that, I'm not trying to be mean there. I'm not trying to be mean, but this is like, this is not, this does not require any, all the questions that I'm asking, everything I'm pointing here out here. Anyone, anyone can point this out. You don't need to go to Bible college. You don't need to go to seminary. Just any good Bible student would be like, well, wait a minute. So you just called into question Micah being a, an accurate witness, yet you want me to rely on the rest of the testimony as being accurate. So which part is accurate? Which part is just him being too pessimistic? Once you call into question, once you call into question, then it, it begins to undermine the whole chapter. Now, I do love the the argument here. Hey, guys, if you're a Christian, This is where you're going to find yourself, no matter if you live in the 1950s, the 1960s, the 1970s, the 1750s. It doesn't matter what year, you're always going to find yourself in a corrupt, dying society. And this can create situations where you may, in a sense, be the only one. There's nowhere to turn. You You may see righteous people get hurt. You may, you may be in a situation where you cannot trust anyone because everyone has abandoned morality and God. All right. Now, now that that those are feelings you can have. Now, again, in the historical setting, Micah may be not he may not be using any hyperbole here. It may be really that bad. And if it's really that bad, then then we're like, OK, so what is the solution here? That's that's what he's going to hopefully try to finish up here in the next few minutes and move from the observation of the wickedness of the day. I would argue it has to be accurate. And he's going to then give us, hopefully, a biblical solution. Instead, the fabric of their society had been eroding for so long that in this moment of pressure, they literally had nobody to trust. 
Micah says that they shouldn't trust a neighbor, even though the law of Moses taught this about our neighbors. But you shall love your neighbor as yourself, for I am the Lord. But they couldn't count on anyone else to actually obey that command towards them. Micah's already said that they're just as likely to set a snare for you or hunt you down than they are to actually love you like they love themselves. Sadly, Micah says that they shouldn't, love their, they shouldn't trust their friends either during this time, even though the Proverbs present this model of loyalty, a friend loves at all times and a brother is born for adversity, for exactly the sort of moment that the people of God were facing in Micah chapter 7. And so not only could a man not trust his friends, but he can't trust his own wife. Instead, in this corrupt society, a husband should be careful about what he says to the one who is lying in his arms. For those of you that enjoy good and loving marriages, can you think of a safer place to share something personal or confidential than in the quietness of the night as you hold your spouse? I can't think of any safer place. But this society was so corrupt that spouses could not trust each other. And the same goes for parents and their children. Look at Exodus 20, verse 2. Honor thy father and thy mother, that thy days may be long upon the land which the Lord thy God giveth thee. Honor thy father and thy mother. But instead of honoring and caring for parents in Micah's days, parents couldn't count on their children because they would treat them with contempt and stand against them and try to exploit them instead. And so Micah looks at his society and he says, it seems like there's nobody to trust, nobody to count on, not even the closest of human relationships, not your neighbor, not your best friend, not your children, not even your spouse. Please note the the usage of language, right? So he said, literally, at one point he said, literally, this is how bad it was. Now he's saying, Micah, Micah says, it seems like. So is it literally... Or does it just seem like it's this bad? Is it literally that bad? Or does it just seem to be that bad? Like Bible, Bible hermeneutics requires precision and language, right? You've got, now listen, I I am not trying to be super critical because I misspeak all the time in sermons and in podcasts. I mean, look, there's thousands and thousands of my podcasts all over the place. You can go hear all, all of my mistakes, but I'm saying, but I, but at the same time, I've got to just like, he's not been precise, whether it's Israel or Judah. He's not given us any indication. Is this a future judgment? Is this something that was happening at the time? He's not given us any, he's not given us any indication of the timing of this judgment or who this is upon. He's used Israel and Judah interchangeably without ever acknowledging a divided kingdom. He's not been precise in any of that. He's indicated that Micah 7 is really Micah being too pessimistic and thinking that he's getting his toe cut off when in actuality he just stepped on a little, on some object and it really wasn't that serious. But at the same time, he turns around and says, wait a minute, it was literally that bad to then just turn around and say, well, this is how it seemed to Micah. So I don't know if I'm supposed to read Micah 7 as, hey, here's a prophet who greatly exaggerated how bad things were. So the lesson is, when I look at my corrupt society, don't exaggerate how bad things are. Okay, is that the lesson of Micah 7? Was it that bad or it just seemed to be that bad? Like, like I don't even understand where this is going. Now he's got, but he, all right, I'm just going to, I'm just going to continue. I'm now I'm starting to get a little frustrated. Now I'm getting a little frustrated.
Can you even imagine? Okay, I apologize. I think, okay, there was a big pause. There was a big delay in the, in the audio there. I don't know what happened. There was just like a big delay. And then I tried to turn the mic on and then I turned the mic off. So let's back this up. I apologize right there. Um, I don't know what happened to their audio. Okay, I'm gonna go back and I'm gonna hit play. And then uh, it was weird. So hopefully, hopefully everything is working. I, I hope they didn't have a problem with their sermon because they obviously uploaded it. So let's make sure everything is good here. All right, here we go. Okay, that's, that's part of the place where the audio just goes silent for like, I don't know how long. And now he's going to come in and say, can you imagine? Can you imagine is what he's getting ready to do there. All right, here we go. All right, that was all confusing. All right, here we go. Can you even imagine a society like the one that Micah describes in these verses? Okay, so now he's saying, can you even imagine the society that Micah described. Well, I don't know if I can imagine it because you insinuated at the beginning that Micah's perception wasn't accurate. So am I supposed to imagine how bad it was or am I so supposed to imagine that it wasn't near as bad as Micah perceived it to be? I don't know what you want me to do because you have completely destroyed... <laughs> I don't even understand. So, hey, can you imagine how bad the society was? Well, no, because you told me Micah is perceiving it to be worse than it actually was. Remember your whole illustration, thinking you're getting your toe chopped off when it wasn't? So, so I don't, am, I, am I supposed to imagine it being bad or am I supposed to imagine it not being as bad as Micah described? I don't know what I'm supposed to do based off your teaching on Micah chapter 7. I don't know. And if you would give me some historical setting, then I could go, go, well, well, obviously it was really bad because this is when the Babylonians came in and took them into captivity for 70 years. So clear, or it was this the Assyrian attack. If it was an Assyrian attack, which Assyrian attack and how bad was it? Did they even get to Jerusalem? Like, give me some historical situation and then I'll be able to know if I can imagine it or not. But I don't know if I can imagine it as being bad because you've called into question that it's not really as bad as Micah has perceived it to be. <laughs> this may be the most, I don't even know how to describe it. All right, here we go. Can you imagine living in a context where everywhere you turn, it seems like nobody else follows the Lord? Like I said, now he's back to, can you imagine where it seems like? It's, so he, at one point he used the word literal. Now he's used the word, it seems twice. So I don't know. Can I imagine a society where it seems to be bad, but it's not really that bad? Is that what you're asking me to do? Can, imagine a society where it seems to be bad, but the reality is it's not really that bad. Okay, well then why am I imagining it to be bad if, it, if it's not really that bad? It just seems to be that bad. I, okay, all right, here we go. Can you imagine a society in which you are bombarded by so much evil on a regular basis that if you are not careful, you may develop the same depressed prophet syndrome? 
You'll either do a full-on Elijah and say, I'm the only one left and I want to die. Or you'll do the, the lighter version, Micah, and you'll say, there's nobody left but me. All right, so, so now, so now, okay, so he's back to this. Can you imagine being in a society where you get the depressed prophet syndrome where you're like, I'm the only one. It's just me. So, so my, he's now almost mocking Micah, that Micah is just a depressed prophet who doesn't have an accurate perception. Well, then that wouldn't be, can you imagine a society being so bad that you get the depressed prophet syndrome? No, it would be, I'm in a society that really isn't that bad, but because I'm emotionally unstable, I get like, what what are you talking about? If the society isn't as bad as Micah is describing, then stop talking about how bad the society is and figure out why Micah can't have an accurate perception of it. And why, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, it's been recorded his inaccurate perception. If this is about Micah's, if this is a chapter describing Micah's depressed prophet syndrome, then the, then the application was, hey guys, don't get the depressed prophet syndrome when things seem to get bad because they're probably not as bad as you think they are. Is that the application here? He's almost mocking Micah. Hey, what you're reading here is just the words of a depressed prophet. <laughs> I don't think I've ever heard Micah preach this way. I don't think I've ever heard Micah 7 preach this way. I really, I, I, th- this is worth the whole, this is worth your, 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 uh, you know, your, your admission for, for listening to my podcast. This is crazy. I, <laughs> yeah. Twilight just said, this is the most confusing and contradicting sermon ever. I, I, I hope I'm not the only one. I'm not trying to overemphasize what appears to be contradictory, but I am, but I am definitely trying to emphasize it a lot because I want you just to be able to detect when you hear things like this. Like he's undermined his entire thesis. Now I've done the same thing in sermons. Like I make every, I put forth a thesis and before I'm done, I'm kind of like, well, I kind of argued against that thesis. Now, usually, hopefully I catch myself and acknowledge what I had done or at least come back the next week and correct it. But this is just, I, by the time this is over, I'm, we're going to have to study Micah 7 just to figure it out because now I'm more confused about Micah 7 than we were about what Micah 5, right? Here we go. Have you ever been there? When it seems like the collective world is literally losing its mind with its incessant calling good evil and calling evil good? Okay, where it seems like the world is literally losing a mind, but it only seems like they're literally, they're not actually losing their mind. They're not actually calling good evil and evil good. They're not actually doing that. It just seems that way. And the reason it seems that way is because you have depressed prophet syndrome. You have DPS, depressed prophet syndrome. Don't get depressed prophet syndrome. That's a mouthful. So this sermon is about beware of DPS. Do you have DPS? Depressed prophet syndrome, where it seems to you the world is losing their mind, but in actuality, they're not. So is the world losing their mind or is it not? I I don't know what he's talking about at this point. And maybe you know that there's more than just you, but maybe you think, well, there's not enough of us left to even matter. Remember, 
Israel was a theocracy, and so their politics and their religion were combined. Their society and their religious expression was all bound up into one. And so if the nation was corrupt, so was its worship. I wonder, do you ever look around and think, there's just so few good churches left, we're the only ones following the Lord. Can you imagine living in a society where you can't trust governmental officials to actually care about true justice? Can you imagine living in a world where oftentimes the righteous person gets prosecuted or sued or imprisoned while the unrighteous people are literally getting away with murder? Now he's back to the word literally. So sometimes it seems that way. Sometimes it's literally that way. Literally seems. Does everybody understand the difference? Literal, literally, it's actually occurring. It seems, means it seems to be that way, but it's not literally that way. So is it literally that way, or does it only seems to be that way? And if it only seems to be that way, then the only thing that Micah needs to do is get an accurate perception of what's really going on and stop with his DPS, stop with his depressed prophet syndrome. And the cure for the depressed prophet syndrome is to see what's literally happening, happening, not what seems to be happening, but he keeps seeing what literally happening is bad enough that you, I, I don't even understand. I don't even understand. All right. Can you imagine living in a world where people are skilled at doing evil, they're enthusiastic about it, and they're even networking together to make it happen? Like a world in which the greatest technology that the world has ever seen and all this equipment, it gets harnessed, but it's harnessed to broadcast graphic sexual images into our homes. Like a world in which medical equipment and skilled doctors who have great understanding of the human body, but they misuse both in order to murder babies in their mother's wombs. Can you imagine a world in which it sometimes doesn't even pay, sometimes, to involve the local authorities because some of them aren't going to care and they might even end up hurting you instead of those who harmed you. Now, am I supposed to imagine a world where I perceive those things to be happening, but they're not literally happening or they're happening, but they're not as bad as it seems because I don't want to have DPS. I don't want to have depressed prophet syndrome, right? I don't, I don't want to be a depressed prophet where I'm like, I'm the only one, right? So is, is it, I, I don't really, I, I don't know what to do with anything he's saying. Again, since Israel's spiritual and religious life was a unified whole, it's right for us to make application to church leadership as well. Can you imagine a world where people are hurt by some so-called churches that enable abusers and set up cultures of control and manipulation? I also have to bring this up. Why do I have to imagine all of this? One of the point of his thesis is that this is literally the kind of society Christians will always find themselves in, right? And it, it, wasn't that the point he made? Why do I have to imagine it? You've already established and that I said was a great observation was that this is where we're always going to find ourselves. So why are we imagining it? Unless he's just using that term to try to go, imagine, see, this is what the world is like now. Okay, maybe he's doing it for emphasis sake, but he's already established this is where we're going to find ourselves. So instead of telling everyone to imagine it, why don't you just say, look around and do, you see the following things and you see the following things literally. 
Now, when we find ourselves in a society that's literally bad, what do we do? Well, so far, the only solution is don't have DPS syndrome because he almost mocked Micah for walking around going, I'm the only one, when reality, he wasn't. So, so far, he just wants us to have an accurate perception of how bad things may not actually be. But then he, at the same time, he wants us to imagine how bad it is. But why do we have to imagine how bad it is when he said that this is the kind of society we will always find ourselves in? We don't need to imagine it. It's where Christians have found themselves, well, since the fall. Can you imagine living in a society where the family itself is crumbling? A society in which parents are willing to kill their own children and then act shocked that their children kill each other. A society of domestic violence. Let me make it very clear. Uh, Cain and Abel killed each other. Not they didn't kill each other. Cain killed Abel before abortion. Right, so let's just make sure we, we like, I always like, you know, when this happens and then we can't, then we're shocked that, can you imagine that basically, you know, parents kill their children and then we're shocked that our ch- children are killing each other. Let's make it sure all of the problems in society originates from the depravity inside us, not because of the things going on in society. Cain and Abel didn't need to be taught anything that it, the, the corruption was inside Cain, right? This Christians love to do that. Like, like, well, you, you teach this, then this is what you get. Well, you can stop. T- like, you know, you teach, ev- you teach people that they're animals. They're going to act like animals. Well, teach them that they're not animals. Teach that they're created in the image of God. Go back into history where people were being taught they were creating the image of God. And what was happening? War, death, destruction, killing, murder, rape, stealing people's lands. I mean, like, give me a break. Like, it, <laughs> slavery. <laughs> okay. So it's always like, see, if you teach this, this, this is this is really 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 bad uh, that this is happening. I, I want you I want you to understand those bad things are always going to happen because that's the nature of our depravity. Depravity is the source of this. We always think that the source of evil is what wrong teaching, bad movies, bad music that creates the problem. Cain killed Abel before rock and roll. Cain killed Abel before rap. Cain killed Abel before violent video games. Cain killed Abel before Netflix, before cable, before HBO, whatever thing that we blame for all of the bad in society. All right, here we go. A society of cheap divorce, a society in which husbands and wives are not loyal to each other, a society in which parents don't, uh, children don't respect their parents and parents don't spend time with their children, a society where true friendship is rare, a society in which people don't know the names of their neighbors. Can you even imagine a society like this? You see, the situation in Micah's time is not different from ours completely. And so what should the righteous do when society is growing this corrupt? Micah tells us. He tells us in verse 7. Now, please note what he just said. What do you do when society grows this corrupt? So now the corruption is actual. It's just not the perception of a prophet with DPS. It's just not the perception of a depressed, someone with depressed prophet syndrome. 
Now he's saying, when it's this bad, this is what we do. So, so was it that bad or wasn't it that bad? I, I, I don't even understand the whole DPS argument that of depressed prophets and why that, that, that destroys your argument. But I am interested to go, okay, so I'm going to go with this. He just gave us a great description of how bad society was in Micah's day. He didn't explain the historical setting. He didn't explain if this is Israel or Judah. He didn't explain any of that. So we can't really look at the historical situation to know exactly how bad it was. But let's just say, okay, he's given us the great description. Let's say there's been no problems. Now, this may be good stuff. What is the solution? Let's see what he provides as the solution. Because this could be beneficial. Remember, no matter how bad a sermon is, you can always learn something, right? He's, he's given us a great observation that we're always going to be in a corrupt society. That's good. Now he's going to tell us what to do when we find ourselves in that corrupt society. Okay, this is good. I, it, he's waited to the very end to do this, but maybe he's going to give us some absolutely amazing points here, and I, I can't wait to hear them. And his message is just as relevant to us today as we follow the same Lord thousands of years later. Number four, when society is corrupt, the righteous must wait for Yahweh to act. When society is corrupt, the righteous must wait for Yahweh to act. Look at verse 7 with me. Therefore, or we could understand that as, but as for me, I will look unto the Lord. I will wait for the God of my salvation. My God will hear me. Now, I fully expect verse 7 to be disappointing to some of you. That's what we're supposed to do in the midst of an ungodly society? I mean, especially in this age of activism where everyone wants to have a cause. I could see verse 7 as being extremely disappointing to you. I'm supposed to look to the Lord? Okay, so th- this, is, this is some good stuff right here. I, w- I would break verse 7 down this way. When you're in the middle of a corrupt society, do three things. Look to the Lord, wait for the Lord, and pray to the Lord, right? Because therefore I will look unto the Lord. I will wait for the God of my salvation. My God will hear me, all right? So there's prayer. So you look, you wait, you pray, all right? I think there's application there. Now, of course, we would want to understand, is this in reference to Judah Look to the Lord, wait for the Lord, pray to the Lord, because in 70 years, he will remove this judgment from you. Is that, is that the context here? Or is it looking for a different salvation? We could, we could have some discussions, but let, let's continue. I'm supposed to wait? Do you like to be told to wait when you're facing a hard situation? In fact, if a counselor tells you you need to wait... Chances are you're going to get on what I call the counselor merry-go-round. You're going to go find another counselor. And then they're going to tell you this is a season of waiting. And you're going to say, I don't want to do that. And you go find another counselor. It's the counselor merry-go-round. No one likes to be told to wait during a hard time. Now, I'm going to point something out really quick here. Um, I'm getting uh, notifications from the Christian uh, from the Edify Christian Podcast app of, of episodes. All right, but uh, I just want to point something out here because he, he, keeps remo- he keeps ignoring the historical situation here. I just want to point this out. Um, verse nine, they're in this horrible situation because of judgment coming upon them. And you'll see this in verse nine, I will bear the indignation of the Lord. 
because I have sinned against him until he plead my cause and execute judgment for me. He will bring me forth in the light and I will behold his righteousness. Remember, they're encountering, they're going to encounter great judgment and they're going to have to wait for the Lord because of their own sin, because of their own idolatry. And this would refer to So in other words, this has a very specific connotation of you're going to wait, you're going to look to the Lord and you're going to pray because you're going to be in judgment because of the sin of Judah or if this is referring to the northern kingdom or of Israel. If it's Judah, then it makes a little bit more sense because you're going to wait because he's going to bring you out of captivity 70 years later. So there's a lot of historical situations here that needs to be added to this, but he's just making it about us and what we should do. I got no problem drawing some of those applications. I just wish there would be a little bit more of a historical explanation. Now, I'm not against movements or causes or activism. Hear me clearly. With these caveats, if they're done for righteous causes, based on clear biblical thinking, and carried out with kindness and respect, I'm not against activism, causes, or movements. Christians are to be salt and light. But organizing a movement to try to take back society was not Micah's response. He says, I will look to the Lord. He says, I will wait. You see, his words reflect a deep confidence in a God who is is in control. His words flow from a heart that believes God and hopes that God will act at the appropriate time. His words should remind us of the Psalms. For in thee, O Lord, do I hope. Thou wilt hear, O Lord my God. I will wait for the Lord. My soul doth wait, and in his word do I hope. My soul waiteth for the Lord more than they that watch for the morning. I say more than they that watch for the morning. But notice that as Micah lives in a corrupt society, looking for the Lord to act, waiting for him to intervene, as he does this, Micah does not have to personally participate in any of the wickedness around him. He can walk in his own integrity no matter what others are doing. He says, and we could translate the beginning of verse 7, but as for me, indicating that his manner of life will be different than everyone else's around him. You see, others may betray both friend and justice, but Micah will love his neighbor. He will, Micah chapter 6, 8, he will do justice, love mercy, and walk humbly with his God. Others may excel at doing evil, but he will aim to excel at pleasing the Lord. And this is not the only time when Micah utters one of these, but as for me sayings in his book. He says, but truly, or but as for me, I am full of power by the spirit of the Lord. I am full of judgment and of might to declare unto Jacob his transgression and to Israel his sin. So the other prophets were wicked, but Micah didn't have to be. The false prophets told lies, but Micah could tell the truth. The false prophets were filled by a motivation for greed, but Micah was filled by the Spirit of God, and he stared down his wicked generation, and he said, you do what you will, but as for me. And if you've read the Bible for five minutes, these words are so familiar. Joshua 24, verse 15. And if it seem evil unto you to serve the Lord, choose you this day whom ye will serve. Whether the gods which your fathers served that were on the other side of the flood or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell, but as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. 
The psalmist says in Psalm 26, 9 through 11, Gather not my soul with sinners, nor my life with bloody men, and whose hands is mischief, and their right hand is full of bribes. But as for me, I will walk in my integrity. Students, no matter how dark the times, no matter how wicked the world, no matter how deep the corruption runs, God's people can stand and say, but as for me. You see, Micah did not have the power to control or change the situation, but he could walk in his own personal integrity. And friends, please hear me. At the very most important level, your integrity cannot be taken. It can only be given away. And so not only did Micah wait on the Lord to act and refuse to participate in the evil of his age, but notice that he also seems to treasure his personal relationship with God in the midst of all of this. Like everything is swirling around him and he is still locked in and focused on knowing Yahweh. He says in verse 7, Therefore, or but as for me, I will look to the Lord, I will wait for the God of my salvation, My God, he will hear me. He seems to draw more and more confidence for living from the reality that Yahweh is his God. And Yahweh is the God of his salvation. And that Yahweh will hear his prayers. Believers in Christ, what a sweet privilege that we have when the world is spiraling into deeper sin and even more rampant unbelief to know that the God of heaven is our God. And he is our father and he delights in our prayers and we can come to him at any time and he invites us to come. And in the darkest of times, this must be our treasure. We draw our greatest comfort from our close and personal relationship with him. And so what are we going to do with this ancient passage? My guess is that you've probably not. What you're going to do with this ancient passage is you've convoluted, confused it, and you're ignoring verse nine. <laughs> it's just, it's just so weird that he's just like leaving out verse nine. And, and I don't know how you can leave out verse nine in this particular, I know you're limited in what you can do, but I, I, I'm just, I'm just curious here. I'm just going to look really quick, see if any commentaries mention Verse nine here. Just give me one second. I know we're already gone way long, but that's Twyla's fault. All right, let's let's see if I can find here really quick. Micah seven. Does any of these commentaries even mention nine? Because nine offers some kind of context of what's going on here. And it looks like, no, I guess they're all going to skip verse nine. Let's see here. Um, Verse nine. The the believer must wait on the Lord in confidence. The believer can be perfectly optimistic in the darkest of times. Okay, well, they they completely remove it from any context as well. What in the world? Why? I don't understand. I don't don't understand. (laughs) Look, verse 9, 
I will bear the indignation of the Lord because I have sinned. Is that Micah referring to the people of Judah, the people of what? What is going on? And it's just going to be ignored. And like, you know, see, see, the, the place was kind of bad, but Micah really exaggerated it. But it was really bad. And so well, here's what you need to do. You need to look to the Lord, wait to the Lord, wait on the Lord and pray to the Lord. And, and I guess rejoice in the fact that he is your God. That's what you need to do. And ignore verse nine. <laughs> ignore verse nine. I heard many sermons on the prophet Micah before. It's not the most popular book in the Bible. But yet it delivers a powerful punch for this particular moment that we are living in. We haven't heard many sermons from Micah because when preachers preach on it, they lose their ever living mind and do. I don't know what they do to the text. I don't I don't even know what this I, I'm really I'm trying to be as fair as I can be. But all I know is that there's a new syndrome out there that we all know to be on the lookout for. And it's called the DPS syndrome, the depressed prophet syndrome. That's what we need to be on the lookout for. That to me is the takeaway. Hey, Micah is exaggerating. Micah's perception isn't accurate. So I don't know why he needs to look to the Lord. He needs to look and clarify his perception. It's like, no, Micah said we need to look to the Lord when things are really bad, but things aren't as bad as Micah made them out to be because you've already established that he had depressed prophet syndrome. (laughs) What are we going to do with these words? What's our takeaways? got a couple takeaways for you as we reflect on Micah from this side of the cross. Number one this morning, and I probably should have taken off Lakewood lesson, forgive me for that. MBU lesson, since our society is corrupt, preach the gospel. Preach the gospel. Are you saddened by the decay in our own society? I hardly need to chronicle the corruption for you. I've done some of that already. You realize that some within a previous generation of Christians thought that they could transform society through political activism? The story of the moral majority is a story of a failed strategy that was fueled by sincere motives. Now, all right. Now, this is good stuff. Now, that's true. Every society thinks that they can somehow fix society, reclaim society by some kind of political activism. And the moral majority was, if we go back to the 70s and the formation of that, was a failed attempt. And we see that in 2022 with churches becoming political. We've got to get Donald Trump and we need to listen to Fox News and we need to, we need to do this and we need to vote this and we need to boycott this and we need to ban this and we need to refuse to do this. And, and it's all of this just engaging the culture at a political level, rebellion, fighting, arguing, getting on social media, arguing about crazy conspiracies, who knows what. No, we need to get back to the only thing that's ever been told for us to do as Christians is to preach the gospel. I completely agree with that. That is a great point. I just wish the point would have been made better in a correct handling of Micah or just don't use Micah to make these points. Right? He could have just done a sermon where, hey, guys, I'm going to show you how corrupt our society is today. Here's article number one. Here's article number two. Society's really messed up. Does everyone agree? Amen. All right. What do we need to do when we're living in an absolute corrupt society? Here are some things we need to do and just not even use Micah. See, sometimes preachers say things that are true. 
but they misuse the text in order to get to that truth. The problem with that is you hear the truth and you're like, well, you can't tell me it was a bad sermon. No, he just gave, he's giving you some very good points. The only problem is he misused the text to get you to the good points. And there's never any excuse for misusing a text ever, no matter how good the truth turns out to be. Friends, what this world ultimately needs, ultimately, It's not for Christians to lead boycotts or to hire lobbyists or to get the right people in office. Yes, there's a place for being salt and light and we need Christians in government and we should vote and we should influence and I get all of that and I support all of that and at a certain level, I'm involved in all of that. But the ultimate solution for a corrupt society is the gospel of Jesus Christ or the return of Jesus Christ. You see, some level of evil can be held back and restrained in a society through legislation and the enforcement of laws. But the transformation that we're truly after, it can only come from the inside out. I have to correct that a little bit. You can restrain the active, you 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 can restrain the external action of evil by legislation, but you cannot restrain the presence of evil in the heart. So you can pass legislation to say, nope, you can't do that. You can't do that. You can't do like you pass that one time there were laws passed to stop homosexuality. Well, guess what? You didn't change people's hearts. So then the people rise up and guess what? Society becomes changed. You can pass all the laws today to stop the evil that you want to condemn today. But if the hearts aren't changed, people will rise up and throw off your legislation and put bills and laws into place so that they can practice their immorality and their ungodliness. So any attempt to to try to stop the practice of evil through legislation is simply an attempt to stop others from committing acts you deem to be evil and all you're trying to do is force your morality upon an unregenerate heart. Well, congratulations, you may stop them from doing it, but sooner or later, enough of them will rise up and throw off your laws because they're tired of you shoving your morality down their throats. That's how it always works. You can win for a while, but if you don't change the hearts of the people, the hearts of the people will rise up and throw off your legislation to get exactly what they want. That's why I think it's such a foolish endeavor for us to run around trying to impose our morality on unregenerate hearts. It doesn't work. Give them the gospel, change them through what they believe, and then disciple them. That, that's the way the Great Commission works. First you teach, that's evangelism. Then you baptize and bring them to the church. Then you teach them to obey. You teach obedience after conversion. You don't force obedience without conversion. And too many Christians want to force obedience to God's law upon unregenerate people. It doesn't work can only come when the Holy Spirit changes someone from within. And the Holy Spirit does this when and only when people receive the gospel. If any man is in Christ, he is a new creation. But people... New, new, they are a new creature positionally, not practically, because the old nature is still present. I, okay, I, I, I'm so tired of having to fix that every time I hear a sermon. All right, here we go. People are not going to receive the gospel unless we preach it. 
How then will they hear without a preacher? And so if you want to see the best and ultimate kind of change in society, then preach the good news of Jesus. And as the gospel is received through repentance and faith in Christ, then people who used to be zealous for their sin and really good at it, they will become zealous for good works and really good at those. And people who used to betray neighbor will start to love neighbor instead. And people who used to be unfaithful to spouse will start to love their wives, not just in some generic way, but as Christ loved the church. You see how this works? And as the gospel... But let's be honest, those same people who are converted will continue to sin and will continue to lie, cheat, and steal to some level because, well, sin is always in us. Sometimes Christians just like, if you get everyone converted, then the world will be perfect. No, even with converted people, there's still going to be sin. There's still going to be moral failure. There's going to, that doesn't excuse it, but let's just make sure we're accurate. It, it, it changes their, they will believe those actions are wrong. And hopefully when they do fall, they will acknowledge, confess, repent, and seek to move on. But the sin is still going to be present. It, it's, it's not like, hey, you get everyone saved and then everything is perfect. It doesn't work that way is received by more and more people then their lives truly change and they change from the inside out so if you want to see societal change preach the gospel number two since our society is corrupt demonstrate what spirit produced righteous living looks like do you realize that the corruption and the decay all around us it forms this dark canvas against which the brightness of a Christian life can shine so brilliantly. In other words, in the midst of all the decay around you, show people what following Jesus looks like. Not a life of self-righteousness, but a life that the Holy Spirit is transforming from the inside out, motivated by the gospel and the grace of God to look like this, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. For example, in a dishonest society, Christian, you can be a person of integrity in all your dealings. In a world full of bribery, as you graduate and you go out into the business world, don't let someone else show you special favors if you become rich or powerful or influential. Don't ever award a contract because of kickbacks or privileges. If you have influence, use it for justice and use it for righteous causes Be faithful in your relationships. Do not betray neighbor. Be loyal to your friends. Love your parents. Be faithful to your spouse. This is just Christianity 101. It's so normal. It's so ordinary inside the family of God. But do you know what it is out there? It is head-turning. And now more than ever, basic, normal, everyday Christianity can be powerfully attractive in the midst of a society that is collapsing. And so Jesus taught his followers, let your light so shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. That's not primarily a verse about evangelism. That's a verse about living a righteous life in the eyes of a lost world. Demonstrate what a spirit-produced righteous life looks like. Number three, since our society is corrupt and since Christ divides family members, prioritize spiritual relationships in the family of God. 
in a group of people this large, there are doubtless individuals in this room this morning that feel the relationship dysfunction of verses 5 and 6. And it's because of the corruption that's in the society, yes. But more than that, it's because they follow Christ and their family has rejected them because of it. Remember how Christ prepared his disciples for this sort of cost for following him. He prepared them for this. He even quotes Micah 7 as he does it. He says, think not that I am come to send peace on the earth. I came not to send peace, but a sword. For I am come to set a man at variance against his father and the daughter against her mother and the daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law and a man's foes shall be they of his own household. In other words, if you trust me, you're going to get enemies in your household. You'll not be able to trust them. He that loveth father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he that loveth son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And he that taketh not his cross and followeth after me is not worthy of me. Some in this room feel as though they have lost someone close to them, a family member, because they have chosen Christ instead. I talked to a young man this week who was put in a situation where a girlfriend in his life made him choose her or Jesus. He chose Jesus. These situations are very real. But some of that sting of relational loss can be taken away when we realize that the church is the family of God. It is the household of God. And Jesus says that those who do the will of His Father, these are family. And so if you're in a situation where you feel like your family, your physical, biological family, has turned on you and it's because of Jesus, oh, then find a larger family in the work of God and love them and invest in them and hold them dear. Fourth and last, since our society is corrupt... Look for the return of Christ who will eventually bring the kingdom. You see, his kingdom is the perfect society. And Jesus is the only perfect king. He's the leader that our hearts long for. He's the leader and the king that this world needs. Micah waited for the Lord. Micah looked for the Lord to act. And friends, in the midst of this time of societal decay, we must do the same. That's the name of the school. Maranatha, Lord, come. We look for the blessed hope and the glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Let us pray. There you have it. Maranatha Baptist University in Watertown, Wisconsin. That is the podcast we have turned a spotlight on today. I know that you're thinking, well, why would I want to listen to that? Because you just criticized that to no end. I did criticize it. Now, there were some good things there. It's good to hear a Baptist university telling the next generation, don't look to politics, look to the preaching of the gospel. That makes me super happy and super excited that maybe this older generation who seems to be so politically hijacked, as they get older and older and kind of move off the scene, the younger generation will come up and maybe they have washed their hands of politics and they'll have a Bible in their 
hand instead of a Trump flag or a Fox News schedule. Maybe the next generation will get away from all of that. So praise God that Maranatha Baptist University is trying to get the next universe, the next generation to go a different direction. That is awesome. That's why we listen to podcasts from seminaries and Bible colleges to get us an indication of maybe what the future is going to look like. So praise God for that. The sad part is that we just heard something from a university where they supposedly preached on Micah 7 and they utterly, completely obliterated anything in that chapter for making any sense. We've got a prophet who is misrepresenting everything and not accurate. However, everything that happened literally happened. I don't even know how that works. He's got a DPS syndrome, depressed prophet syndrome. He doesn't, the preacher didn't even bother to give us what is going on here, what judgment's being referred to. He completely ignored verse nine, which has to be understood somehow. And, and, and he just completely just ignored all of that, which is, which sadly, that's what the future of preaching will continue to look like. That's been the problem with preaching in the past. That's been the problem in the present. And it's going to be continually to be the problem in the future if schools won't instruct their people in how to handle a text correctly. And you instruct the people in how to handle a text correctly by demonstrating correct handling of the text in your preaching. You've got to show the people, hey, here's Micah 7. Here's what we know about its historical context. Now, here's what we're going to do with it. Now, and you can't then establish a thesis and then undermine your thesis. I mean, his thesis was Micah is misunderstanding how bad the situation is. He thinks it, or Micah is perceiving the situation to be worse than it really is. If that's your thesis, you can't then turn around and go, hey, can you imagine a society that bad? Well, wait a minute. You already said that we can't trust Micah's perception. And then, and then, so what do we do when we're in a society that that's bad? Well, according to you, we need to get rid of the depressed prophet syndrome and see that it's really not that bad. But then he wants us to act as if it really is that bad. And then we need to do these things, but then ignore, well, wait a minute, are things this bad? And as a result of things this bad, judgment is coming. And in the midst of that judgment, what are they to do? Well, even though they're in Babylonian captivity, they need to look to the Lord, wait on the Lord and pray to the Lord. And serve the Lord, no matter how bad that it is, because after the judgment is complete, God will then restore them. Is that a more correct understanding of the text? I, I, I don't know, because we didn't have any attempt to actually work on the text in a meaningful way. So there's a lot of things to be hopeful there. There's a lot of things to be discouraged there. That's why I want you listening to podcasts that originate from Bible colleges and seminaries. So we'll give you an idea of where the church is going because that's the future of the church. Look, I won't be preaching. I don't know how, how long I'll be alive and I don't know how long I'll have the ability to sit here in this building and preach. I don't know. It requires people to be here in this building. It requires money. It requires, it requires my health. I don't know how long I'll be. But you look at some of the most famous preachers right now. Look at them. R.C. Sproul's gone. John MacArthur is who knows how long. Just think of some of the really famous preachers. Where are the younger preachers coming up? Many of the younger preachers that are coming up that are super famous are, you know, are preachers that many would consider are heretical. So where are the, we're going to be the net? Well, the next ones are coming from sitting in schools like that. They're going to be the next ones. And when they come up, what are they going to, they're going to be, they're going to reflect in many cases, the education they received. We need to see where things are going. Because that's where, 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 and then we need to do everything in our power 
Every church needs to do everything in its power to equip and prepare the next generation so that they and the churches need to be equipping them and helping them so that they can get into ministry as soon as possible. Like, I, I can't stand the missionary deputation. The, what's it called? Whatever it's called, where they go from church to church to church trying to raise money. I, I, I can't stand that because why? There, that local one local church should be able to say, let's let's get you to the mission field as soon as possible. Not pack up your family and drive around the country for two years trying to get money. No, how about we give you as much money as we can and get you on the mission field? How about, no, let's not send you off to seminary. Stay right here in this church. I'll train and equip you. And then this church will then send you out to either another church that's established or help you start one. And then you don't have to incur all kinds of debt. Church Churches have to invest in the future of Christianity. And one of the things we can do is at least know where Christianity is headed. And that's why I want you to subscribe to the Maranatha Baptist University. Not because I agree with everything, because that just gave us a clear indication of what's going on in schools. And there's a lot there to be, there's a lot there I rejoice over. There's a lot there I'm discouraged by. Because that that is handling a Micah 7 was contradictory, confusing, convoluted, and at times frustrating. But we've talked for two hours and three minutes. So hopefully, I I wish I could have given you, now I feel bad. See, now I feel like I did something wrong because I feel like now I need to do something on Micah 7, but I don't have the opportunity now, but I'm going to put it, I'm putting it in my memory because at some point we'll go back to Micah 7 and we'll do something with that. Trust me, we'll, we'll, we'll create maybe a week where we're doing two Bible study exercises, but I will not forget. And, and for anyone who listens to this, you don't let me forget because, uh, and if you do any work on it, if you do any work on Micah 7, especially those who are part of the Discord channel, post away in the Discord channel. I think currently the Discord channel is down. Discord is having some kind of current problem. Hopefully it'll connect back in a few minutes. Um, once that's ready to go, then we, we can talk there later, or you can email me, newsif at yahoo.com. All right, there you go. Okay, and for some reason, I obviously upset someone because I did receive an email while this was going on that simply called me the Antichrist. <laughs> so I, I, don't know what I, I don't know what I did wrong, but someone wasn't happy with me, uh, and so now I'm the Antichrist. I don't know what I did wrong. Maybe it's a student from that university. I don't know, but I'm now the Antichrist. So maybe they were referring to something else that I said. So that's uh, that's always encouraging uh, that I am the Antichrist because I'm simply, I don't know what I did. They, they didn't really provide much context. Probably they do go, to, no, I'm not just, I was going to be a, I was going to, I was going to say a bad joke about context, uh, but I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to do that even though I've already done it in my mind, so I'm already guilty of it. Probably shouldn't have thought that way. All right, there we go. All right, it's it, two-hour-long podcast because of Twyla. I was going to break this down, but Twyla said don't stop. So it's her fault, all right? So if you want to call her the Antichrist, feel free to email me and just say send this on to Twyla, and I will forward it to her and let her know, or I will read it uh, during a church service when she's here and let her know that she's now been considered the Antichrist. There you go. All right. I, ho- I hope that was some fun. I-, I think it was fun. I just was a little frustrated, <laughs> but but at the same time, I mean, it's weird to end a sermon where you're like, yeah, that's right. Get rid of the political hijacking, but 
could you handle Micah seven a little bit better next time? It's like I'm really I'm I'm confused by what just happened. Uh, but there you have it. Thanks for listening. I'll be back here on the air here shortly. God bless.